Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 76. My name is Christopher Luft, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be speaking with David Burkett, the founder of Signal Blur. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this show, Lima Charlie. My name is Maxim Lamet Brassard, and I'm the founder of Limit Charlie, and the company behind the SecOps Cloud Platform. Cybersecurity tools today need to evolve from the one-size-fits-all silos into a modern tool set to adapt to the specific needs that you have. The SecOps Cloud Platform works by providing you with full access to the underlying security tools and infrastructure. Everything's on demand with no minimums, no contracts. It's an approach that's really like AWS has done in IT. We offer a full featured free tiers, no credit cards, no contracts, nothing. Get on the platform today, deploy an EDR, start ingesting logs, build a product, start an MDR, an MSSP, whatever you can imagine. We're making security flexible so you can build what's possible. You can learn more or get started for free at limacharlie.io. Thanks for being on the show with us today, David. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, longtime listeners to the show will probably recognize your name. You joined us back in August to talk about Linux ransomware. For those that may not be familiar and to help kick things off, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Yeah, so my name's uh, David, and I am the founder of Signal Blur Cyber Threat Intelligence. From there, you know, I, I mostly do uh, SOC consulting, so using my background of managing SOAR platforms. Uh, I've built SOCs for two MDR programs and uh, also do some uh, advisory when it comes to building detection engineering programs. The reason I asked you to be on the show again is because you recently gave an interesting talk with an interesting take on the kill chain at a security engineering and automation conference called Mission Control. I most certainly want to pull your talk apart on the show here, but before we do that, I'm, I'm curious what your Mission Control experience was like. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience at Mission Control, what you felt the focus of the conference was, and overall experience there? Yeah, I actually, I think I told you all this, uh, even in real time, that was such a great conference, considering it was a first time for you all. Like, it felt, and I'm sure behind the scenes everything went wrong, but as a speaker, it felt super smooth. It felt like everything went right. The AV was good. And it was just, honestly, it was a lot of fun getting to see uh, everybody from uh, the Lima Charlie uh, Slack channel in real life. But yeah, it was great. Uh, as someone that does a lot of consulting, especially with MSSPs, with that kind of a focus and emphasis, it was really awesome. So I'll take it you're going to come join us again next year? Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, let's get to it. Why don't you start by just telling us what the kill chain is at a very high level and uh, how or why it came about? Yeah, so the kill chain is uh, essentially a threat intel framework that you can use that is supposed to help uh, aid and guide defenders through an investigation. It's got uh, seven phases. I think most people were familiar with this, the reconnaissance phase, the weaponization, delivery, exploitation, installation command and control and action on objectives. It's definitely more of a uh, red team minded uh, phase as it's taken from, you know, the actual kill chain. But it uh, is something that's uh, really commonly deployed or employed by organizations currently. Okay. And at the opening of your talk, you compared the advantages and disadvantages of the kill chain versus the MITRE ATT&CK framework. 
Can you quickly explain the MITRE ATT&CK framework for those that may not be familiar and then how that stacks up against the kill chain? Yeah, the uh, MITRE ATT&CK framework is, or at least in its uh, initial inception, was a, a way for um, uh, basically an organization built the framework that was a way for people between different organizations to have a common language to communicate different security behaviors or attacks uh, that you might see an adversary do. And what it really did is it focused in on the kill chain, but with uh, a lot more in depth with it. So uh, you have, you know, it, it breaks it out into different phases for, at the tactical level. But it, overall, it's a more in-depth version of the kill chain that actually has more of an emphasis and focus on actual individual techniques and tactics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very tactical focused way of letting organizations test their defenses against certain types of attacks. Right, exactly. And it's a, it's a great way to kind of track uh, your detection management and what you um, might have uh, for a uh, detection coverage versus what you're actually seeing in your environment, building uh, heat maps and the like. Mm-hmm. And then the kill chain would be more of a philosophy, you might say. Right. Yeah. So that's actually one of the mistakes I used to, to think about. So Whenever I was getting started in cybersecurity, I always thought the kill chain was like this more academic way of thinking versus something that I could actually use as a cybersecurity analyst to do an investigation. Uh, so, for example, you know, I, I knew what the phases were. I kind of knew at a high level um, how each attack would kind of fit into it, but I didn't really know how I would actually operationalize it or use it as an analyst. And as I've kind of matured throughout my career... Uh, and have gotten to work with a lot of different people, I've came to a, a quite a few different conclusions. And one of it, uh, or one of them was the the language within the, the kill chain itself is just very vague and confusing. So what I uh, tried to do is iterate upon it and make a more defensive-minded and focused uh, kind of version that uses a, a little bit better language. So a good example of that being... Whenever I was first getting started, there was always the vulnerability phase. As a, a blue teamer or a defender, I was like, how do you know what vulnerability an attack used? I mean, who knows? Like, it, there's so many different vulnerabilities, blah, blah, blah. You know, I just, I had no idea, like, how you would actually identify that. And because of that, and just thinking of it as, like, an individual exploit, I never, I was never able to really connect the dots in that phase very well as to, like, you know, I, I knew what it meant, but I just didn't know, like how to actually apply it. Whereas in my investigators model, we have uh, some different language uh, that we use in that, uh, that I think makes it a little more clear by basically focusing on something uh, verbiage like the wording uh, vulnerability assessment and understanding that rather than thinking about uh, that stage of the life cycle as, you know, just an exploit that an attacker sends, you think of it as more of a defensive minor uh, minded uh, person. So Again, when you think of the word vulnerability assessment, you, you would take it as, hey, I'm going to assess what vulnerabilities are available on this system, compare what software was involved, and see if the uh, vulnerabilities maybe line up or if there's something that looks like it could be a match or potentially you may have discovered a new zero day. So again, using that language, uh, I've, I've tried to go through and iterate and improve on the, uh, the, the kill chain as a whole. Yeah, no, that's a great way of looking at things. And I really like how 
in your talk, you quoted, I can't remember the exact quote, but the idea being that language shapes our perception of reality. And so by changing that language, you change the way we think about the problem set and it kind of makes it more intuitive for the people working on the defender side of the house. Yeah, exactly. And uh, a perfect example that I like to use is the word freedom. Uh, to someone that's in jail or prison, the word freedom is going to mean something very different than someone that might be in a sock with no windows at the end of like a 12-hour shift. You're going to have different thoughts based on the words used and based on your personal experiences. Uh, and with that in mind, trying to focus more of that on the investigator side, uh, as a lot of blue teamers never do work that red team. I think has a huge advantage. Okay. Well, I've got the list of the new stages that you put forward here. And I'd also noted too, that where the kill chain involves seven steps, the list that you're putting forward now has eight steps. Do you want to touch on why you decided to put them into two or is it a new step altogether? Yeah. Um, so uh, let me just go over the, the whole um, piece of it from... I guess, top to bottom, just so everybody's aware of all of the different steps, the changes, the kind of thinking behind them, that sort of a thing. So uh, again, this is essentially taking the kill chain, thinking of it from a defensive mind step. But um, instead of having a reconnaissance phase, again, reconnaissance being more uh, aggressive or attacker minded, uh, we have a discovery phase. So as a defender, as an investigator, I'm going to know that an attacker is going to need to do some form of discovery about my environment, about what they're doing to be able to... Uh, uh, attack me, exploit, move around, all that kind of jazz. The second phase being the preparation phase, that's largely like the weaponization phase. Again, just more thinking from a defensive mindset. The attacker is going to have to prepare their infrastructure, prepare what exploit they're going to use. Same phase, so basically the same thing. The third phase, delivery phase, no real change from the kill chain. The fourth phase, uh, again, is the vulnerability assessment phase. And that's the one I just kind of really went into. So I won't do that whole spiel again. But uh, I think that for me personally, that's the first big one that's going to have a big impact. The next one is going to be action execution. So rather than being installation, because what does that mean? Especially in the case of like a business email compromise, you're not probably going to install anything. By using action execution, that actually gives us more of a, I guess, a, a way to mentally kind of talk about multiple different kinds of attacks. So ones that may not always involve malware. So like if we're going through and talking about business email compromise, you know, you might have your discovery, someone, you know, looking for your maybe usernames and emails that might have passwords leaked for them, doing the preparation, maybe configuring whatever kind of brute force tooling, delivering that payload, you know, through over the network, through the brute force, vulnerability being potentially not having two-factor, that's not going to be a CVE uh, vulnerability type, right? But it is going to be something that's a weakness that you can exploit. Action execution being the act of actually logging in to whatever, you know, maybe that inbox might be. Persistence being things like Outlook rules, maybe doing, if you have the access, creating other accounts. And then, uh, of course, the interaction, what you're actually doing once you're uh, in on that box. You can think of that as you know, your your old command and control that's typically going to be over a network. And then lastly, uh, you have an end goal, which is going to be what, again, think of the action on objectives. And um, I kind of glossed over it, but during that installation phase, I broke that out uh, into two different phases, the action execution and the persistence phase. 
I like that so much more than installation because, again, it, it gives you so many more options to where there's not going to be some weird overlap or vagueness or maybe wording where something doesn't really fit or maybe it could fit in like kind of two uh, uh, places at once. And I also included, you know, how you would use it from a malware perspective and that sort of thing. And then one of the other uh, kind of major differences, and maybe you're going to ask me about this in a second, so I won't dig into it too much, but is the fact that whenever you're applying this, it's helpful to think of it more, at least at the tactical level during the investigation, as a circle that will keep repeating itself until you've reached the end of the investigation. And then, uh, whereas the kill chain is more of a linear way of thinking where, you know, it, it just has from the start of the investigation, you, you know, fill out each phase. The, the middle model that I kind of come up with you still can do that at the end of the investigation. You know, if you're uh, looking at it from a more strategic view after the, uh, you know, incident investigation itself, and you just want to see everything that happened in the discovery phase for each rotation, you know, in one spot and so on and so forth. So I guess the, the biggest difference is being the exploitation phase name change, the installation phase being broken out into action execution and persistence. Uh, and then the, just the fact that it being more circular in nature versus linear. Yeah, and I find it interesting that persistence has been broken out on its own because in a lot of these new sort of macOS attacks and info stealer attacks and stuff like that, persistence isn't necessarily a goal of the attackers. Yeah, it's it's really hard to get all edge cases. And the way that I look at that in specific, that's not going to be your typical, I guess, attack that you're going to work or really worry about. But it, if you really think about it, I would actually even argue that that is most likely going to be just the first rotation, uh, getting, you know, that info stealer uh, to get creds, whatever it might be, before that re wheel starts back over. Uh, and then they're trying to access maybe that user's account or something uh, or other. So it's not going to be, you know, 100% perfect, but I find that it has, it's more edge cases to that effect. Uh rather than being whole classes of like attacks. So like business email compromise, just not really fitting in the kill chain with its real verbiage. Yeah. And I love how that, like you were just saying, you know, the info stealer comes in, gets credentials, wheel turns around, and now they're up in your SaaS apps. And maybe persistence is a thing that time because now they have credentials and they're doing all the bad stuff they like to do. Right. Yeah. Like once they have those credentials, they're going to do some form of discovery to see where they work. They're going to prepare, you know, uh, their exploit or whatever they're going to do, you know, whatever you need to and so on and so forth. We're getting way back down the uh, the circle. So. All right. Well, that's all great stuff. But let's talk about where the rubber meets the road. How is this an advantageous approach when applied to the SOC? Why would somebody want to adopt this approach versus sticking with MITRE or this traditional version of the kill chain? Yes. So very good question. Uh, the first way I'll answer that is the, in, in regards to why we use it over uh, the MITRE attack framework, the main benefits are, is the, uh, the kill chain is still largely taught in one-on-one uh, analyst level type courses. So your junior analysts are more likely to be familiar with it, even if they can't necessarily apply it, they'll at least kind of understand, you know, how it works. And then because of that, it's easy to just kind of Again, you're only really changing the verbiage, but it changes the way that you think with said verbiage. As an analyst, it then becomes easy to apply during your actual investigation. So as you have, you know, something going on, maybe 
you've detected something like a payload being sent across the network or something to that effect. You've caught up the delivery phase and you know you can work your way down. As a SOC manager and maybe a, a threat intel analyst, where uh, it has its pros over the uh, attack framework is, one, the attack framework is not going to cover every technique. There's not going to be a tactic you can use or a, a technique ID associated with it. So you're going to potentially have gaps. So you'll have to have some sort of way to account for those. Two, it's large and it's getting larger. So as it's gotten bigger and grown and uh, gotten sub techniques and so on and so forth, it's still super useful. But the smaller your team is, it can update at a speed that can be really hard to keep up with and uh, to really map to uh, as a whole. So for example, you might have an I don't foresee this likely being the case again, but there was a, a major attack update uh, not too long ago, and a lot of the tactic uh, and technique numbers changed whenever they added the sub-techniques. And just having things like that can add a whole lot of overhead, and the benefit that you might get for a really small team might not really be there. Whereas if you have something that's a lot easier to align to, like the, the kill chain, or even really, uh, again, my investigator's middle model, you can pretty much fit everything into each one of the phases. It's easier for your analyst to kind of, whenever they're going through and tagging, you know, what a case might be or what uh, a detector might be. They have a, an easier idea of where it might fit rather than trying to find multiple different tags that might apply. So for example, like the case of run DLL32, there's some that for, for in, in defense evasion, uh, and they have the same tag numbers, but they're in a different column. So there there can be some fuzziness there. And then lastly, of course, I think I, I just mentioned this, but uh, just in case not, whenever you're reporting upwards, so as a SOC manager, your director or your CISO is probably not going to care or even need to know down to the individual technique. So as a SOC manager, all of your detections are going to already be aligned at that more strategic or operational level. So it makes reporting data about your detection and your security operations program, uh, reporting that data up. A lot easier and you can then use that thing or use that data uh, to do things like say you know we're consistently missing uh, things in the delivery phase maybe we need to go back and uh, revisit how many detectors we have there or um, potentially in the vulnerability assessment phase we can't really or we have trouble identifying what vulnerability was used to exploit our systems maybe that's a, a sign uh, that we need to purchase better you know vulnerability uh, assessment software so as a, a SOC manager, it really just makes your life easier from being just a simpler framework. There's less overhead in terms of maintaining it, makes it easier to report up. As an analyst, in my opinion, it really helps you kind of gauge where and how to investigate something. So for example, if you catch something at the action execution stage, you'll probably, or I would hope to, you'd know to go back and work your way down and back up until you couldn't anymore. Yeah, and then uh, as like a, a threat intel and an analyst detection engineer, like I said, it's there's a lot less uh, overlap. There's a lot less uh, potential conflict uh, around what those tags might be between analyst and um, but again because it is something that's still taught, it's uh, a lot quicker for new analysts to pick up. Yeah, and I think across any system, when you can make things simpler, you're going to have benefit. You know, the MITRE attack framework definitely has its place, but. Like you said, for a smaller MSSP or MDR, this seems like a much easier thing to adhere to and kind of give structure to the the operations. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, it doesn't actually even have to be either or. 
Um, you know, you can definitely use both. I, I like to think that this is an easier jumping off point. So let's say your security monitoring program is just getting started. Uh, it is so much easier to align to something like this or the kill chain than trying to go through and figure out all of your disparate tools and how they tag the metadata and their different ways and how to like unify that and, you know, extract that data and make uh, use out of it. Like I said, it's a lot of overhead, and uh, I think that for smaller teams, there often can be time better spent doing you know actual investigations or detection writing. All right. As I'm sure anybody who has listened to the show before knows, I always ask our guests for their predictions about the future of cybersecurity at the end. Last time you were on the show, your prediction was that there would be an increase in remote code executions used as an initial access vector, and that Linux would be a bigger and bigger target. Has your position on that changed at all? And do you have any new predictions about the future of cybersecurity? No, I think uh, since the last time I was on here, you know, it wasn't that long ago. So I don't know that I've had enough time to form new predictions. Uh, I would still say that, in my opinion, uh, Linux uh, and containers are definitely still going to be more more of a target. And uh, I'd also kind of think that as laws and regulations start tightening around the industry, Things like detection and security are going to get closer and closer to the actual code itself versus, you know, maybe something responding to alert after the fact. So I kind of see long term the industry moving more towards that direction as a personal opinion. Awesome. Well, David, uh, always a pleasure talking to you. I know you got lots of exciting stuff going on right now, so maybe we'll have to get you back on the show again in the future. So thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. This was a great conversation. Yeah, not a problem. I love being here. <laughs> okay. Take care, man. Bye. Bye. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.